We'll open your Bibles this morning again to the third chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to read beginning in verse 7 down through verse 11, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 and down through verse 11. You'll notice this is a a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, but Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And let us pray. Father, as we continue to worship Thee this morning, we thank You for just the gathering of the saints. We thank You for the songs that we have been able to lift to Thee and the expression of our own hearts and what a great and glorious and mighty God You are. Thank You for the the preciousness of fellowship together this day. And I pray again for the, the help of Your Holy Spirit these moments to convey Your living Word, Your pure Word, Your holy Word in a way that brings glory and honor to Thee, but also in, in a way that is um, illuminating to our own minds and edifying to our hearts and, and helpful to our, our thinking process. And uh, You would help us to translate it into living increasingly for Your glory So I I pray it would serve those ends, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have seen in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6, it concerns itself especially with the superiority of Christ over Moses, and it especially relates to um, the respective uh, areas of service in God's house. Uh, Both our Lord and Moses were faithful in discharging their duties in God's house, which is brought out in in verse 2. And um, the last time, time together, we really especially emphasize this concept of God's house, which in the New Testament is equivalent to the church of the living God. And we saw that God is the creator of this house. It would not exist if it was not for him. And also the supremacy of Christ over this house. Moses was faithful as a servant in the house. Christ was a faithful son over the house. And also the the nature of the house, it consists of the people of God. Verse 6 says, whose house we are. So it's it's made up of those who are born again, those who are brethren, the the many sons that are brought to glory. And we notice that our, our author added a conditional statement, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. He adds this conditional statement. It's the, it's the kind of, of verse that fits under the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that is continuing in the faith, that is continuing to believe on Christ and trust in Christ. It, it's related to texts like 1 Corinthians 15.1, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, or Colossians 1.22 and 23. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And also Matthew 
uh, 24.12, And because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. That's perseverance, continuing to believe and rely on the person of, of Christ. And it's important, I think, to realize the author, he's not writing here in a, in a detached fashion, but he's concerned that his readers would be those who truly do persevere until the end. They wouldn't be those who shrink back to destruction, as some would do. Peter O'Brien wrote, Our author is clearly concerned about the perseverance of his Christian friends, whether the, the waning of their initial enthusiasm, the apparent postponement of their hope, or the different kinds of pressure which had been brought to bear on them have threatened the steadfastness of their faith, he's aware that genuine faith is tied to perseverance, and that true believers are those who hold fast until the end. He does not wish them to fall by the wayside, so he urges them to press on and not slip back. And the positive motivation here to persevere in the faith, no matter how arduous and difficult the path becomes, it's Moses, and it's especially the Lord of glory himself, who for the, the, we're told who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just in, in terms of, of structure, verses 7 through 19 could be understood as a negative motivation and a great help to persevere in the faith. It deals with Israel's um, example of unbelief. And the thought would be, be like Moses and our Lord, not like Israel, not like them in the wilderness who they perpetually put God to the test by their unbelief and their rebellion. One writer says in the next segment of his exhortation, the author moves naturally from the positive examples of Moses and Jesus to the negative, negative examples of the Israelites who by their disobedience to God fell in the wilderness and failed to reach the promised rest. Well, the fact of the matter is, we all want to persevere in the faith, right? We all want to persevere until the end. We don't want to be like Demas, who having loved this present world, um, Paul, he went to Thessalonica. We don't want to be like that. So the question arises, uh, how, do, how do we persevere in the faith? What do we do? How do we respond to this particular doctrine? And I believe that the beginning of this section, verses 7 through 11, can be understood especially in this context as a great means of assistance in this endeavor of persevering in the faith. So this morning, we'll look at four or five helps to the spiritual activity of persevering in the faith. Four or maybe five helps to the spiritual activity of persevering in the faith. And the first one is, is a bit more general. It's to consider the ongoing validity of the Old Testament as it relates directly to Christian living and Christian thought. The first help, it's how you and I think about the Old Testament. And that we have in the Old Testament God speaking directly to our souls for the good of our souls. In the Old Testament, it's God speaking directly to us. And that's the first thing I think that stands out here in this category of persevering uh, to the end. It's how we regard the Old Testament. And it's not just that the author uh, makes his point by referring to the Old Testament. Uh, he does do that, but he writes with regard to these words from Psalm 95, saying, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, he's referring to Psalm 95. He's referring to the Old Testament. And the way he puts it is, just as the Holy Spirit says, referring to Psalm 95. 
Um, it's regarded as divine speech. Its words are elsewhere presented as divine utterance. And this way of inter- introducing the quote, I think, is important in at least two respects. Number one, it immediately draws our attention to the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. The emphasis here is it's on what God says. It's what on the, the Holy Spirit said. The words of the Old Testament are rightly presented as God speaking. As William Lane wrote, it's characteristic of the writer's high conception of scripture. If you turn to chapter 10 and verse 15 for just a moment, chapter 10 and verse 15 um, See, the same kind of language here. In verse 15, it says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. Um, for after saying, then verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. So it's referring back to uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah. As, as one put it, um, the writer never makes mention of Jeremiah as the writer through whom the words of the new covenant came, but relates it to the activity of the Holy Spirit. So you see the same kind of thing going on here. It is in Jeremiah, but the issue is it's what the Holy Spirit had to say. This is not an, an overt proof, I don't think, of the inspiration of Holy Scripture like 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But it, it does seem to me it's, it's a good illustration or expression of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. Its authority is ultimate because it's the moral creator of the world who is speaking to us. Philip Hughes wrote the formula, as the Holy Spirit says, which introduces the quotation, it has the effect of demanding the serious attention of the readers and emphasizing the extreme seriousness of the warning conveyed in the quotation. It's none other than the Holy Spirit who is admonishing them through this passage of Scripture. While it is doubtless true that the author is not primarily concerned with the doctrine of biblical inspiration, yet these few words disclose in a manner which is quite unforced the attitude with which he regards Scripture. For him, as for the other apostolic authors, the message of Scripture is the voice of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Italian theologian Aquinas wrote, the, uh, the authority of the words arise from this. They are not the products of human invention, but of the Holy Spirit. He adduces the words of the Old Testament for the new, lest it should be thought that their reference is only to the Old Testament and to a former time instead of also to the new. They're the words of the Holy Spirit, because as declared in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy ever came by the impulse of men, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. For David himself says in 2 Kings 23.2 of himself, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. This therefore demonstrates the genuineness of the authority because it derives from the Holy Spirit. By the way, um, there are always, you may have found this, there are always those, and especially in our day, who demean or dismiss the value of the Old Testament as an ongoing source of authority. Have you found that kind of mindset out there? It's dismissive of the Old Testament as being relevant um, to our ongoing Christian life. And my, my point here would simply be this. That kind of mindset and those who promote it should be absolutely rejected. I mean, they're the ones that are irrelevant. What is relevant is the Holy Scripture. Here's what the Bible itself says about the relevance of the Old Testament. And from Isaiah chapter 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the right attitude to have towards the Old Testament. Not dismissive, but who trembles at my word. Um, What we have in the Old Testament, it is God speaking directly to us. 
And when our Lord himself wanted to validate the legitimacy of his ministry in Nazareth, he appeals to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And we read in Luke chapter 4, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden. So these words, as the Holy Spirit says, draw our attention to the authority of the Old Testament. But I would add also, we've kind of touched on this, but to the relevance of the Old Testament as an ongoing source of instruction in Christian living and in Christian thought. The the verb here translated says, it's in the present tense. And William Lane writes about this. It's important. Through the quotation of Scripture, the, the Holy Spirit is speaking now. Consequently, the witness of the scripture is brought from the past into the present, contemporary with the experience of the readers, and now for us. One writes here, the focus of the introductory formula, as the Holy Spirit says, is of the Spirit continuing to address the present listeners through the text, which is the living word of God. So we see the immediate relevance and applicability of the Old Testament scripture to empower us now to live for God and his glory. And positively, this is displayed, for example, in a, in a chapter like Hebrews chapter 11, which We'll eventually get there. It's about the triumphs of faith. And, and there we read after one Old Testament saint after another who persevered in the faith to the end. And we have people like Noah and Abraham and Moses, the names that are familiar to us. But it's especially helpful because we, we see that people who persevered against horrendous opposition to their, their living for Christ or living for God. For example, it says that women received back their dead by resurrection Others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Uh, James 5.11 says, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Let me just read to you, in in terms of the Old Testament, helping us to persevere in the faith. Let me just read to you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You might think of Hebrews 11 as a positive example. This is a a negative motivation to persevere and and not be like uh, those in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and sit up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
So, so we have these examples in the Old Testament. Some are positive and some are negative. Some are to be copied and emulated. Some are to be rejected. But it, it's a document that speaks directly to our souls. So a great help in persevering in the faith is our, is our view and understanding of the ongoing applicability of the Old Testament now to our own souls. Well, then a second help to persevere in the faith <clears throat> Excuse me. is to consider... Uh, in, in t- Turn here, if you would, back to Psalm chapter 95. Psalm chapter 95, a second help to persevere in the faith. And we'll get to that in a second. But it's to consider the, the danger of hypocrisy. That's a second help, I believe. Um, hypocrisy is the idea of practicing or simulating or feigning to be what one is not, especially assuming a false appearance of piety or virtue. Um, it's a term that was used of uh, playing a part in a play. Short definition of a, of a hypocrite would be an actor, although um, an actor doesn't necessarily have a, a negative connotation, but it does help us to understand the concept because a, a good actor is one who can compellingly play different roles. A good actor is one who can present themselves very well as something which they are not. But it's presented negatively in the scripture, um, meaning it, the meaning is those who would feign piety or virtue. And our Lord warns against this in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he said, when, when therefore you give alms, don't sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, as they, that they may be honored by, seen, excuse me, honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. He says, when you pray, um, you're not to be as the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. So religious hypocrisy, it's oriented towards pleasing man and not God. And as believers, I'm suggesting, more than suggesting, we're still prone to this. In Galatians chapter 2, we read that when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, this is the Apostle Paul writing, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So here you have two stalwart saints, Peter and and Barnabas, and, and by means of the fear of man, they're led into this position of compromise and hypocrisy. Uh, Romans twelve nine says, let love be without hypocrisy. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, well, verse 1 makes it clear, if you and I are to benefit from the Holy Scriptures, one of the spiritual maladies that we have to consciously put away is hypocrisy. Verse 1 says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that, that you may grow thereby. Now, when I say that this verse or these verses help us to persevere in the faith by avoiding the sin of hypocrisy, I'm especially thinking of the force of the transition that takes place in verse 7 in Psalm 95. So hopefully you're at Psalm 95 right now. So it's only 11 verses, so I'm going to read all 11 verses. And notice the transition that takes place in verse 7. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Then notice this. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they, they tried me. Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, surely, excuse me, truly, they shall not enter my rest. So in the first seven verses here, you have this this positive presentation of worship and praise and adoration. Then when you get to verse 7, it seems like kind of an, of an abrupt transition. For he is our God, we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. It, it seems like sort of an incongruous intrusion from the, the sweetness of worship to, you know, don't fall away, don't be like these people. It's sort of like maybe somebody talking about like their honeymoon and kind of a light subject. And then the next person said, did you hear about those three teenagers who were killed in a car accident last night? It just doesn't fit the mood. And here it seems like there's this intrusion that doesn't quite fit. But I think Matthew Henry gets the point right. He puts it like this. The latter part of this psalm, which begins in the middle of the verse, it's an exhortation to those who sing gospel psalms to live gospel lives. It's an exhortation to those who sing gospel psalms to live gospel lives, to hear the voice of God's word. Otherwise, how can they expect that he should hear the voice of their prayers and their praises? I thought that was a helpful phrase. Um, It's good to worship God. It's good to sing praises, um, but there should not be a great gulf fixed between praising on Sunday and the kind of life one leads on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. My, my mind goes back here a long way as I was a new Christian and I was in a fire station one day and I, I was reading a Bible. And, and so a guy that came up to me, pretty sure he wasn't saved and worked with him a bit, pretty sure he didn't know the Lord. So he comes up to me and he said something like, if you're going to do that on Sunday, you better do it on Monday. And he left. And I thought, well, that's actually, I've thought about that a lot. It's actually a pretty good sermon. It's don't be a hypocrite. And he was from an unsafe perspective. His thought was, if you're going to do that on Sunday, that's fine, but you better do it on Monday also. And, and, and so a great help, I think, to persevering in the faith, it's to it's avoid the danger of hypocrisy and, and um, saying something that doesn't reflect who we truly are. Well, then thirdly, the cultivating of a spiritual disposition that's eager to conform to the dictates of Holy Scripture, a disposition that is eager to conform to the dictates of Scripture. The text affirms here, uh, today, if you hear his voice, and that's really what I'm thinking about here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, the term here here is to listen or to hear with intention. Uh, Peter O'Brien writes, hearing his voice is not limited simply to listening audibly, but also involves paying attention to what is said and obeying him. Matthew eleven fifteen says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When addressed by God, listeners are put in the position of having to respond one way or another. Clearly, the author wants their response to be one of faith rather than disobedience or rejection. 
The language here conveys a sense of immediacy. Don't hesitate. Today, if you hear his voice, that's the point here. It's like, don't hold off. Immediately try to conform our lives to the dictates of Scripture. Don't be like Lot in Genesis chapter 19, before the destruction of Sodom, the angels urged him to take his family and flee or be swept away with the destruction of the city, but he hesitated. Don't be like the people on Mount Carmel. when there There was a contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah Elijah says to all the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer. Don't don't hesitate is the idea. Rather, there should be a sense of, of eagerness and immediacy in putting Scripture into practice, really all that we read in Holy Scripture. Um, this is the kind of response that we desire in, in salvation. Uh, the Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. That There's an urgency for people to respond to the gospel because the opportunities are limited and the time is fleeting. So we, we understand that mindset as it relates to salvation. And, and it relates to the... Um, to sanctification and growth in Christ as well. Deuteronomy 31.12 says, Assemble the people, the men and women and children and the alien who is in your town, in order that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of his law. Hear and learn and fear. Be careful to observe all the words of his law. So it's, it's a hearing that's eager to response. It's a comprehensive obedience to all that's revealed in Holy Scripture. James 1.19, I think, brings it out. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So a great help in persevering in the faith is this spiritual disposition of being eagerly desirous to not only know the word, but a sense of immediacy to put it into practice for God and for his glory. Okay, then a fourth help to persevere in the faith. And that is um, continually evaluating the condition of your own heart. Continually evaluating the condition of your own heart, thinking here of the, the content of the injunction, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. The text says don't do that. Don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me. This is um, the immediate response that's called for as one seeks to persevere in the end. It's, it's important. It's mentioned again in the book of Hebrews. Uh, to harden is it's to make stubborn or, or obstinate insofar as the truth of God is concerned. A heart may be pliable and open to the world, to the voice of the world, but, but it's hard and obstinate in terms of the holy word of God. O'Brien says it's, it's a vivid metaphor that describes a refusal to do God's will. It's closely aligned with unbelief. 2 Kings 17, 14 says, however, they did not listen but stiffen their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And it's also closely aligned with unrepentance. Romans 2.5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. By the way, this is the language that's often used to warn people not to repeat the sins of their ancestors. Just an example would be Nehemiah 9.16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to thy commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember thy wondrous deeds which thou performed. 
among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. In Jeremiah 7.26, Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. So O'Brien writes, The psalmist generation was urged not to follow the sins of the Israelites who wandered in the desert. Now the admonition is spoken to the present generation to which Hebrews was addressed. So really all I'm trying to do is remind you here that you really can't overestimate the priority of the heart and the living of the Christian life. It's hard to say too much, I believe, about the centrality of the heart and the living of the Christian life. Um, We know, again, this is how the true Christian life begins. It's not a superficial intellectual assent. Rather, it's if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it's clearly how the Christian life progresses. Keep your heart with all diligence out of the issues of life. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God's concern and interest is always the heart. Proverbs 17, 3, the refining pot is for silver, the furnace is for gold. The Lord tests the hearts. The prayer of the Christian is Psalm 26, 2, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. That's the prayer. Test my mind and my heart. Search me, test what's going on. Seek what's going on there. Reveal it to me. B.F. Westcott, his very helpful commentary, brings out the danger of a hard heart, an insensitive heart, by referring to Pharaoh. And, and there, are three, there are three kinds of texts that refer to Pharaoh hardening his heart. One, he hardened his own heart. Two, God hardened his heart. Three, his heart was hardened. And Westcott's conclusion is scripture recognizes man's responsibility and no less the inexorable law of moral consequence. The law of moral consequence by the working of which God hardens the heart of the disobedient and self-willed. It indicates that when one chooses to become insensitive to spiritual truth, that their heart does not remain the same. It becomes harder and more resistant to spiritual truth than it was before. It's sort of like when, when the cement is wet, you can put a handprint in it for a while. You can write your name in it for a while, but not for long. And then it becomes hard, and then you can bounce the ball off of it. And the idea here is don't harden your heart. Um, It's always good to pray when everybody's awake, I think. And so let us turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for uh, the time together this morning. And I thank you for each one that is here. And as we are fellow pilgrims that are, we, we know that we're on our way to the promised land. And we know that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much. And, and yet I pray you might be pleased to take these realities to alert our minds to the true nature of the Christian life. Lord, it's, it's not a walk in the park, but rather it's a warfare with opposition. So I, I pray that you would fortify our, our souls and use these considerations to deepen our, our love for thee. But I, I pray you'd give us each wisdom, knowing our own hearts and knowing our own situation. I pray that you would make holy application to our hearts. I pray that the result of being here would be a, a help in our own thinking process, especially as we think about persevering in the most holy, precious saving faith that was once delivered to the saints. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.